Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Feel Your Fandom Podcast. My name is Saint. And I'm Jim. And we want to welcome you back. Hey, we have a couple of things coming up uh, real soon that we want you to keep track of. Coming up on the horizon, we've got our first ever live Facebook Live podcast. Uh, coming Exciting. Up on June 12th at noon. Super excited to try that. Don't know what that's going to look like, but hey, whatever. Could be a mess, uh, but that's half the fun of it. Right? Improvisation. And uh, we also are, we got a couple other guests in the pipeline I can't talk about just yet, but uh, uh, we got uh, some exciting stuff on the horizon for the Fuel Your Fandom podcast. I'm just happy to be here. Uh, Jim, how you doing today, man? Uh, real good. Um, you know, it's it's been a... Uh... A weird couple of weeks, what with trying to reintegrate back into society and trying to remember how to be social and <laughs> trying to uh, trying to, to, to not uh, not be locked down. So I've been going out quite a bit, and I found that uh, even as much as I consider myself an extrovert who needs kind of social interaction to recharge my batteries, uh, I've been going out a lot. Um, you know, hanging out, seeing friends, having dinner, singing karaoke, doing all the things that I used to do in the before times. Um, and I'm finding that... Um, you know, I, I aged more in this last year of being kind of in quarantine than uh, than I realized. So I'm getting a little too old for rock and roll. So I'm, I'm scaling back the social <laughs> schedule a little bit. I mean, a lot, actually, because uh, going out four nights in one week and still trying to work a full-time job that's uh, often more than full-time, it just kind of caught up with me. So uh, I really am glad to uh, have a long Memorial Day weekend here to, uh, to sort of sleep and catch up. How about yourself? Boy, and you are kidding, man. I, I've, I've discovered that... Uh... Yeah, like getting back on stage and doing the things I do and moving around yeah. and, and being more active than I have been accustomed to being in the last year, uh, aside from work, which has always been rather active for me. But uh, it, it's it's taken a, a bit more of an egregious toll on my body. And so I've been yeah. really trying to scale back and uh, I've been trying to eat healthier, which is not as much fun as I would like it to be. But, you know, <laughs> being that I'm extraordinarily food and snack motivated, uh, it's... It's something that I'm having to adjust to. Over my and, shoulder, you can't see it, but I have a giant bag of um, this snack that I'm absolutely addicted to. They're called Wild Chips, W-I-L-D-E, and you can find them at, I think, Wild, if you just Google Wild Chips. But they make a, uh, a, a, a chip that tastes like a potato chip, has the uh, sort of crunch of a potato chip, but it's made with, I think, tapioca flour and chicken. And uh, it's just about as delicious as it sounds. They have all these great chicken flavors like Nashville hot chicken and uh, chicken and waffles. And they're, they're not a sponsor of the show, but uh, I'm going to plug I them would anyway totally let I... them be a sponsor. I've, I've oh, had yeah. their chips. The Himalayan yeah, sea salt are my favorite ones. That, I just ate a bag of those last night when I uh, got home from being, uh, from being where I was. And they're just, they're just delicious. Uh, they're a little on the expensive side, but, you know, they're not so expensive. It's like 100% amount... pure protein. Yeah, it's like 20 grams of protein a bag. And, you know, if you're like me and you sit down and eat an entire bag, then you're going to get 20 grams of protein. Um, but they're great. They're, they're fantastic. I highly recommend them. And like I said, they're a little on the pricey side, but they're, they're worth it for what you get. And you can buy them in bulk and just get like a giant box and eat your way through them for a couple of weeks. And uh, very, very thumbs up on that. What did you pay for the box? Um, I think I got uh, two of the all-flavor chicken variety pack, which is... Um, jalapeno chicken and waffles himalayan sea salt salt and vinegar nashville hot chicken and buffalo chicken so i got two each of those bags and then they actually came out with some new pork chips which are the same oh. concept but they're pork and they have one that's a uh, uncured 
uh, bacon and pepper, one that's like a barbecue and mustard, one that's a chili lime verde, and one that's, uh, I think, uh, chipotle. I, I don't, yeah, I haven't eaten the pork ones yet because I'm working my way through the chicken. But there, I got, I think, let's see, a total of 16 bags, and I want to say it was like 90 bucks. So, like, a little on the pricey side, but, you know, I mean, for what you pay for snacks at the grocery store. Um, right. You know, they're not that bad, and they're actually delicious. So, I, you know, as, as, as much as it's kind of a splash out of cash to get a nice big variety box, I, I do it probably at least once a month. You know, and again, like you said, not a sponsor, but hey, Wild, if you want to be a sponsor, we both rather enjoy your products. So, oh, I'm sure. just putting that out there. Yeah. Um, I'm not a sellout only because somebody hasn't written a check yet. Right, exactly. Uh, but yeah, so I've been trying to eat uh, a bit more healthy. Uh, I've tapered back even on the zero sugar sodas that I've been accustomed to drinking. And uh, I, I've limited myself to one zero sugar uh, energy drink a day. And then other than that, it's mostly just been water uh, or yep. coffee. I'm living that um, seltzer life. And thankfully, mm-hmm. being in Wisconsin, we have a couple of options. I mean, LaCroix kind of blew up and became like a real hipster Silicon Valley millennial thing to drink. But it's funny because uh, LaCroix is a Wisconsin product, and we've had it forever. I, I don't, don't remember a time in my life when we didn't have LaCroix around here. But LaCroix, um, for a long time, was kind of the uh, – somebody's auntie was always trying to quit soda at the picnic or the barbecue, so there would always be like a six inches of melted ice in the bottom of that battered red Coleman cooler, and there were always like a dozen cans of LaCroix floating around in the bottom was the last thing left because nobody liked it, and you could prank your cousins, pull one out and say, hey, look, it's strawberry, and they'd crack it open and drink it. And, of course, it's just – <laughs> seltzer with a little bit of essential like, oil flavor like in you it and, dipped a strawberry in it yeah you know it's uh the the, the, the classic meme of uh yeah new lacroix flavors uh strawberry but with a low battery a hint of hint of lime transported in a truck near bananas so it's incredibly faint <laughs> but uh it's you know i like the stuff i do because i'm a super taster so i can appreciate subtle flavors but i remember as a kid pranking your cousins you know they would drink it and uh, of course in unsophisticated like nine-year-old palate that's just constantly pounding high fructose corn syrup it's not going to accept a uh, a subtle essenced seltzer as being anything that tastes like anything so it was always funny to me to see how much that shit took off and became like this very very hip uh high millennial drink kind of thing yeah yeah like that was the but, shit that we always had left over at the end of the picnic you guys but enjoy it <laughs> but i'm drinking it now because uh i don't want to die right exactly and that's kind of where I'm at too. So I'm, I mean, I'm trying to uh, lose weight. I think I've lost a little bit of weight. I haven't checked since my last doctor's appointment, but uh, I think it's having an effect. I'm, I'm going to assume it's having an effect. Um, we'll see. But yeah. yeah, so I'm trying to do that just so I can, you know, keep up with the young kids on stage and everything. My bandmates are all like a decade plus old, younger than me. So uh, it's it's kind of uh, I don't want to be the grandpa on stage limping around after a show. So. Uh, I have to kind of regulate myself at this point. So Time to start battling gravity. In fucking deed. But uh, yeah, as always, if you guys want to find us, you can find us in a very myriad uh, array of places. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash fuelyourfandom. You can hit us up in our primary Gmail, which is uh, fuelyourfandom at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up with the backup email, the fyftalentbooking at gmail.com. That's where you send show ideas, guest suggestions, including yourself, if you'd like, and pie recipes. And, of course, the primary streaming site, apart from all of the 
platforms where you can find fine podcasts like Spotify and iHeartRadio and Stitcher and all the other places. You can find us at FuelYourFandom at Buzzsprout.com if you always want the latest and greatest episode, and that's where you can stream us into your ear holes directly. Indeed. So, what I kind of wanted to talk about today, Jim, and, and it's something that I've noticed with you. Obviously, we're both very musically driven, both being musicians. Sure. Uh, we were we were talking about before the show, you were getting ready to, to reform another 90s alt-rock cover band, which is super cool to hear. I'm, I'm excited yeah. to see you uh, dipping your toes back in that arena. Something but, I've been dreaming about for a while, and it's time to pull the trigger on it once again. Absolutely. I'm, I'm always a fan of people getting out there and expressing themselves in whatever way they can. Um, music is something that has very uh, heavily influenced both of our lives, and and we talk about fandom being anything and, and fandom being, you know, uh, a wide variety of things. But uh, one of the things that I'm a huge fan of is music. And now we've talked about, uh, we've had episodes where we talked about like cover music and things like that. And, and, and mm-hmm. uh, that was a lot of fun. But uh, we've touched on it a few times, uh, what your favorite band is. So I kind of want to give you the floor to kind of talk about uh, your favorite band, and we'll talk about my favorite band today. So uh, um, obviously we've talked about your favorite band being Queen. Yes. And then with me growing up, one of the all-time, aside from Queen, uh, one of my all-time favorite bands growing up was Aerosmith. Fantastic band. uh, I'd like to kind of have a little chance to talk about uh, what it is that we found in each of those bands that kind of drove us uh, musically. So... um, Let's talk about Queen a little bit, man. So, you 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 uh, you you can kind of take the floor here, man. This is your 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 thing. Well, I don't have very uh, many claims to hipster fame of like I liked it before it was cool. Because um, first of all, because Queen was always cool. Right. But Queen has had an opportunity a couple of different times through Wayne's World, through the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, through uh, other means, has kind of boomeranged back into the popular culture and the popular consciousness several times, but. My uh, my Queen fandom started, I never had a prayer of not being a Queen fan. Uh, to hear my mom tell it, anytime Queen would come on the radio, or if my folks were listening to Queen in the house, because we always had music in the house growing up, while she was pregnant with me, I would get real active and move around. Um, something about the bass line and Another One Bites the Dust, or something about the, the soaring harmony vocals during Bohemian Rhapsody just got my little pre-birth ass going like nothing else. So <laughs> mom used to actually take a pair of headphones, and put them on the baby bump while I was still in there and play Queen, and apparently I just loved it. So a lot of people say that they've been a Queen fan for their entire life. I've been a Queen fan since before I was born. And I'm not saying that because I have to... uh, I'm not going to be a gatekeeper about it. I'm not looking down on people who kind of came to Queen through uh, Wayne's World or through Bohemian Rhapsody. It's like we talked about last week in the fantastic podcast we did with Aaron De Arrive about Star Wars. There are many on-ramps. There are many points of entry into Queen fandom. And I kind of love that about that band. But like I said, I've been a Queen fan since I was an absolute, you know, fetus. And Bohemian (laughs) Rhapsody and I entered the world in the same year, uh, 1975. To this day, my favorite album in the world is Queen's A Night at the Opera. Uh, So much so that I have the cover art, which was designed by none other than Freddie Mercury himself, tattooed on my left shoulder in vibrant color ink. Um... So I kind of grew up in a house where there was a lot of music. My folks were very into music. So I had a pretty good base of, of musical uh, versatility, musical variety. We had a really wide range. Uh, my folks, obviously, they uh, came of age in the 60s. And they listened to a lot of 
great 60s rock, a lot of uh, Motown, a lot of what they guess I now term oldies in the uh, in the, the parlance of radio programming. That's such but a diminutive also, term. I hate it that. Is. It, it really is. But they, you know, they also kept up with popular music. So, you know, uh, I was born in 1975. And so that was kind of the era of arena rock. You had your your Eagles, your Fleetwood Mac, your your uh, your Journey, and your 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 Foreigner, and like all those great um, you know the, the bands that they now call arena rock. But Queen was always very very heavy heavily represented in my musical upbringing. And I remember one of my earliest memories, visual as well as auditory, was um, my dad had this green Chevy Impala with an 8-track player on the dash, and I'm really dating myself incredibly heavily there, even though I just gave up on <laughs> birth date. But, yeah, and, and we had Queen's Night at the Opera on 8-track, and I wanted to do nothing but drive around and listen to that album, like the entire album. Uh, so I would... Uh, my, my, my dad actually kind of got tired of it after a minute, and he hid the 8-track under the seat. My earliest memory... Uh, you know, when I was a kid, and I'm talking like of, of any memory, the first thing I remember doing in my life is pulling out the Queen's Night at the Opera 8-track from underneath the seat of that green 75 Impala and putting it into the dashboard because I wanted to hear Bohemian Rhapsody. And the cover art of that was, uh, of course, plastered on the front of that chunky plastic 8-track, and the, the labels would always wrinkle and ripple and tear on the front because they were made of the cheapest paper imaginable. But that cover art and that music as part of the experience were seared into my brain together. Yeah, and so I just listened to Queen. I had a um, a, a Halloween Snickers tin that looked like a boombox. I used to keep all my cassettes in when I first started driving my car when I was 16 years old with a cassette deck and the dash. And I had spent all of my the whatever money I was able to scrape together through whatever however teenagers get money, paper routes or mowing lawns or whatever the hell it was, and I would spend it all on Queen albums. And There weren't CDs then, and I wanted to drive around and listen to music like I had as a kid with the 8-tracks, but of course 8-tracks are passe by the 90s, so I bought all the Queen cassettes, and I had every album that I knew of uh, on cassette by Queen. Freddie Mercury, the flamboyant frontman of the veteran British band Queen, died Sunday in his West London mansion. He died peacefully at age 45 of bronchopneumonia brought on by AIDS. And then uh, in 1991, tragedy struck. Um, Freddie Mercury announced that he had AIDS and that he was fighting it. There had been speculation in the British press, which is still notoriously invasive and, and was even more so at the time, um, about you know Freddie being sick. But I, not being in the UK, was not really necessarily privy to that. I was just a Queen fan. I bought the album. I listened to the albums. There was not really an internet then. You could necessarily keep up on entertainment news. And, right. of course, uh, Queen was not the band in America that they were around the world at that time. They had sort of like fallen out of favor uh, because American society tends to be very homophobic. And so right around uh, 81, 82, when uh, Under Pressure with David Bowie was a big hit, uh, America kind of stopped paying attention to Queen wholesale until 1986 when the very famous uh, Live Aid performance, which by most standards and by most estimations of rock and roll critics and people whose opinions are worthy of respect is still cited as many as being the greatest rock and roll performance that's ever been performed on any stage anywhere and i happen to agree with that i think it was fantastic. I, I as well yeah yeah so 86 uh you know they got a little bit of a bump but for the most part uh queen was was largely ignored in america in the 80s they the classic rock stations would still play you know somebody to love or they'd play we are the champions and we will rock you back to back like they opened up on the news of the world album but america didn't really play a whole lot of queen hits in the 80s but when freddie mercury died um he died right around the same time that the, that wayne's world came out and i remember hearing mike myers tell the story about how 
um, Freddie actually did see. They they did they knew that he wasn't doing well, and they sent the scene over of Wayne and Garth and their their boys in the car in the in the Pinto or Gremlin, whatever it was, and headbanging to Queen in the car. I think we'll go with a little Bohemian Rhapsody, gentlemen. Good call. And then Freddie passed shortly after that. Uh, and then Bohemian Rhapsody obviously featured very heavily in that film, and it was incredibly popular. So a lot of people discovered Queen, but not long after not long after Freddie was no longer with us. But still. Um, you know, between the Freddie Mercury tribute concert that happened in 1992 at Wembley Stadium, which was, of course, the site of their very triumphant and famous Live Aid performance, where the who's who of the music world came out to, to honor the memory of Freddie Mercury, Annie Lennox was there, George Michael was there, Robert Plant was there, um, you know, Axl Rose and Elton John, and, and it was just a, a, a massive celebration of this guy's life, and, uh, Notably, the last time that longtime bass player John Deacon would appear as a member of Queen or even really appear in public at all. Uh, but that's another story entirely. But that really, um, when, when Freddie died, I was, it was a real punch in the gut to me because I had just been a fan all along and I had been buying all their albums and playing their, their, their tapes in the car. And I fell in love with their later albums like Innuendo and um, The Miracle, which were just fantastic, fantastic records. Uh, but they didn't get any airplay here, but I still loved them and listened to them and Right, and and uh, they were favorites of mine, but then what I've really been encouraged by, and what I, what I've really loved to see is over the years, like I said, when Queen, <clears throat> just they just keep on coming back. They keep on coming back in the popular culture. Something big will happen, and then all these everybody comes out of the woodwork and just absolutely appreciates everything that Queen is and and what they brought to to, to the musical landscape and the popular culture, and it's just a really encouraging thing to see. But. There are just so many reasons to love this band, even apart from their music. Obviously, they've got a, a legacy of, of music that stretches over 20 years, and uh, they're still going. I mean, uh, the, you know, Adam Lambert is out there doing shows with Brian May and Roger Taylor. They're still packing arenas and stadiums. They're still playing the hits, and uh, there's rumors they might record some new stuff. And then, uh, obviously, uh, Mark Martell, who is the uh, lead singer of formerly of the Queen Extravaganza tribute band, which is the official tribute band put together by Roger Taylor. And now he's got his own gig called the Queen Experience, I believe it is. He's out there keeping that music alive. But, you know, it's just so it's so vital and so important. And there's just so much lore and so, much, uh, so many stories. Because in addition to being somebody who appreciates the music, I also collect the memorabilia. I've got posters, I've got books, I've got... Uh, rare recordings that I hunted down before MP3 was a thing when I was in college and I'm hanging around sketchy shops that sell bootlegs <laughs> looking for that European release with that B-side that you couldn't get here. And uh, Yeah, bootlegging so used to be there. a huge thing. Uh, yeah, People would go to, to concerts with, with the fucking tape decks and bootleg yeah. the concert and then they would uh, distribute these. And this is has to do with Aerosmith as well. They did the same thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, they would distribute these bootlegs of like Oh, this is a show from uh, Madison Square Garden, or this is a show from yeah. you know uh, Red Rocks or whatever. Well, I, I and, went to and... there was a, I went to, to college in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, which has made the headlines recently for not such great reasons because of the whole uh, um, Jacob Blake shooting and and all the shit that fell out from that, which is just tragic and awful. The but I went to school Kyle there Rittenhouse and was... bullshit. Ugh, fuck yeah. that guy. Yeah. And there was a record store at a strip mall called Earful Records at the time. And I'm talking like this was right around 93, 94, mid-90s. And it was run by a guy named Thomas Thorne, who alternative and industrial music fans will know as um, the former Buck Ryder. He used to play with My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult. And then he started a band called Electric Hellfire Club, which is pretty well known in hardcore circles. But he also ran a record store. 
And this record store is my favorite record store because uh, they had all kinds of crazy shit that you couldn't find on the shelves at the erstwhile Sam Goody or or uh, Suncoast Music or that was movies. What's the other one? Sam Goody and uh, Recordland. There were a bunch of like mall-based record stores, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But I walked in there once and because I'd heard some rumors that you could buy off-shelf shit at that place, and I walked in and. There he is with his Team 666 t-shirt on and his uh, four locks of hair spiked up into devil horns. And I thought, yeah, I can hang with this cat. And I said, so I have heard tell that there might be some uh, bootlegs available at this place. And I'm interested in seeing what you've got. And he said, well, we don't really use the B word around here. We just say discs of dubious origin. And I said, all right, well, show me to the section of discs of dubious origin. And he said, well, what particularly are you looking for? And I said, I'm a huge Queen fan. And he's like, oh, Queen, yeah, Freddie Mercury, what a god. And even though it wasn't necessarily the kind of music that he made or was really into, you know, Queen has that ability to just transcend and, and just to reach people that might not necessarily otherwise have uh, been interested in, in, in whatever they were doing. But he just appreciated the authenticity of that. So he showed me over to the section there, and there were some CDs that were 25 and $50 that were collections of, of live recordings from, from Europe, and there were B-sides and rare tracks and all that kind of thing. And I wound up giving that dude a lot of money in college because it wasn't just the era of everything is available all the time everywhere. And you couldn't just go on YouTube and download it. You couldn't just go on Napster and check it out. You actually had to buy physical storage media with your discs if you could find them. And you had to go physically and do it in an actual brick-and-mortar store because there wasn't any internet that you could look on eBay or, or check on Amazon. So being a fan in those days was tough, but it was absolutely worth it, and I found a lot of really great shit. And as I listened to Queen, as I kind of like steeped myself in, in all of this, this, this body of work that they had done, what surprised me most about Queen is that a lot of bands from that era, you can sort of like, if not pigeonhole, at least label them as being, oh, they're this kind of band. And a lot oh, of people yeah. have heard a lot of Queen songs. But what kills me about them to this day is their incredible versatility. Uh, this is a band And I wanted to make sure we talked about that, too. Yeah. About, uh, they didn't lock themselves down to one style of music. Um, obviously, Bohemian Rhapsody is a class by itself. It's it's a song that's six minutes long, has no chorus, uh, has several movements like a symphony, and it covers a couple of different styles that didn't really, you know, there's an opera section for fuck's sake. So that was something. And then you, you can strip things back and, and do a song like We Will Rock You that's literally just 90% hand and foot percussion and a very simple melody line. But or you they go also did to like stuff. the pro progenitor of like even heavy metal type things with uh, yeah. Stone Cold Crazy. Stone Cold Crazy is a song that got covered by Metallica years later, and Stone Cold Crazy came out in 1977 on the follow-up album. Well, actually, it was the second follow-up album. Uh, to Night at the Opera. News of the World was kind of considered to be something of a double album because they were recorded more or less concurrently and came out about a year apart. But News of the World is an album from 1977 or 78. And Stone Cold Crazy was on that album. And this is well before Slayer. This is well before Megadeth. This is well before Speed Metal was a thing. But it basically invented it. And yeah. that was a tremendous thing. You've got a, a country stomp like Fat Bottom Girls, which is fantastic. You've got a rockabilly song like Crazy Little Thing Called Love. Whatever genre existed, all the genres that existed at the time, uh, there's even a song called uh, My Melancholy Blues, which has no guitar. It's just piano. It's a torch song that, that closes the same album that Stone Cold Crazy is on. So come and get me. Let me. Feel 
It's a beautiful piano ballad with like brushed drums and 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 uh, and a beautiful loungy piano track, and that was all, all in the span of the same album. So this band had the not just the ability but the the drive to produce songs that were in every genre that existed at the time, and and maybe even some ones that they they sort of invented. And if you go back and look at a lot of their stuff, there, there's just you can't pin them down to one style, and, and I've always loved that about them. And they're also one of those bands that even casual fans or people who are kind of dimly aware of them, you can play a song by Queen that maybe was a hit, and they'll go, oh shit, I didn't know that was by Queen. Yeah, it was. Another One Bites the Dust got a whole lot of play on uh, funk R&B and what they termed black radio at the time in the, in the in the early 80s because there were a lot of people who had never heard Queen before that were uh, soul funk and R&B fans, and they heard Queen, and they assumed they were a black group because, you know, John Deacon sort of uh, adapted the, uh, the bass line of Another One Bites the Dust from Sheik's Good Times. And kind of made it his own and, and created that song. And so no matter what kind of music you're into, Queen was like, hey, guess what? We have something for you. We, we have a that song too. that you're going to love. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's amazing. And, uh, you know, the fact that, and again, I'm, I'm bouncing all over the place here, but I, I, I love this band so much and I have all this history in my head. But, you know, uh, something that I, I really was hoped had would have made the Bohemian Rhapsody movie, but they, they kind of started at a point that was a little bit later. And, you know, I have to say this. I had a lot of friends who uh, came up to me after Bohemian Rhapsody, knowing that I had, had had my hand in some screenwriting and also knowing that I was an obsessive Queen fan, and said, what did you think of it? And I had to say that I loved it. And the reason being, like, screenplay structure, and we touched on this a little bit last week with Aaron, is a pretty rigid thing. Um, it, it follows a certain structure and a certain pattern, and all movies do. So the writers of Bohemian Rhapsody, the film did have to sort of like move some things around a little bit. There were some things that were slightly out of sequence. Um, there were some uh, some moments that weren't necessarily historically accurate, but they were close enough, and there were things that in order to make a movie that followed the conventional screenplay structure uh, that all of us subconsciously accept and recognize if it's off, they had to take some liberties with the actual history, but the fact that Brian May and Roger Taylor were, were there to, uh, to sort of uh, keep their eye on things and, and be stewards of that, um, you know, you can't really take too much away from it. But one of the things that I had really wished they talked about in the movie that they didn't, they didn't have time, is that Brian May, and I'm going to say Dr. Brian May right up top, because that guy, he is the modern Renaissance man. He is Buckaroo Banzai. That guy, he is not just an incredible guitar player uh, with a singular tone and an incredible technique that you know and recognize immediately, no matter where you are. Uh, his guitar tone just doesn't sound like anybody else's on earth. But he's also a luthier. He hand-built the guitar. It's been called the Fireplace Guitar, the Red Special, the Old Lady. The guitar that Brian May played on stage and in the studio forever was hand-built by he and his father when he was 14 years old. Because Brian wanted a Telecaster or a Stratocaster in the window of the music shop that he walked by on the way home from school when he was in the UK. But couldn't afford one. So he came home to his dad and said, you know, I'd like to, to make a guitar. And his dad was an electrical engineer. So... Brian May conquered the world with a guitar he built like uh, 
Obadiah Stone said in the first Iron Man movie, out of scraps. That guitar was built from literal garbage. The actual body of the guitar was carved from an old fireplace mantle that they had laying around in their house. Uh, the pickups are all hand-wound with uh, monofilament wire that Brian then packed with epoxy to make sure they weren't microphonic and didn't pick up anything other than the, the strings that he wanted them to. The fret markers on the neck are uh, mother-of-pearl buttons from his mother's sewing kit that he cut down on a lathe to fit an inset into the neck. The uh, whammy system, the tremolo system, uh, is actually balanced on a knife edge, and it uses old motorcycle springs for the tension. The whammy bar itself is a bent knitting needle that he heated up with a butane torch and put an elbow in so that he could hook it to the tremolo system. And probably most notably, the bridge on that guitar. This was something that Brian came up with on his own because he's a fucking genius to this day. But the bridge on that guitar, each one of the strings sits on a very small ball-bearing machined roller that's actually got a little hourglass-shaped roller that each string sits in the, the, the nexus of, in, in, the, in the crotch of, if you will. And the strings roll over those individual ball-bearing fittings so that the strings weren't sawing over a stationary bridge and therefore prone to breakage. Brian came up with that himself. Now you'll find it on just about every Gibson guitar that they produce. But this guitar was a masterpiece of engineering and Brian built it himself and of course now he's got replicas because the guitar itself is a one-of-a-kind item it's it's insured for millions it's priceless uh, and he doesn't really play it anymore except for very special occasions and if he's doing an interview he'll pull it out uh, but there have been many many replicas by companies like Guild and um, others that, that have put out uh, they laser measured the guitar and and sourced the, the pieces and, and made replicas and some of them are good enough that Brian plays them himself uh, but they're also available for sale if you're in a Queen tribute band or you want to just get that look or that feel or that sound right but um, yeah that guitar hand built but he wasn't That's just incredible. an electrical engineer yeah or, or a luthier I mean he, he was those things and is those things but Brian May also when Queen first started Brian May was uh, in school to be an astrophysicist he was going to the Imperial College of London and he was in the astrophysics program pursuing a Ph.D. in space science. And then, of course, the band took off, and then he spent 20 years conquering the world with Freddie and company all over the world, playing to, at one point, world record crowds at, like, the Rock and Rio Festival in Brazil, um, and doing things like Live Aid that, to this day, just are still echoing in the walls. Um, but then after uh, Queen had a break, when Brian was, I believe, in his uh, late 50s or early 60s, Brian went back to the Imperial College of London and he finished his PhD in astrophysics. He actually he's legitimately has... Yeah, he's he published. published a, he published a paper on space dust movements in the zodiacal cloud that is still cited as being uh, very valuable. He, he worked with NASA to help launch some satellites a little while ago and wrote a theme song for a, uh, a particular section of the space program that was, that was uh, absolutely <laughs> epic. So, That's incredible. Yeah, and in addition to that, he also is very interested in, in nature conservation. He's got a badger sanctuary in his backyard at his house in England. And he also, if that wasn't enough, is a stereoscopic photography expert. And he wrote a book on that, the very early 3D, where you could put a pair of glasses on and look at a picture and, and uh, blend the two pictures together, kind of like, I, I, I want to see the sailboat, but like we're talking back in the 20s. And he became a, uh, an expert on that and wrote a book on it. So this guy, he's just absolutely all over the place, but... You know, my favorite thing that he has ever done is his music. And I, I'm going to wrap this up here real quick because I know that we, we're going to get to Aerosmith, <laughs> and I really want to talk about that too. But every one of the guys in the band, every one of these guys wrote a song that became a number one hit. Uh, John Deacon wrote You're My Best Friend from Night at the Opera, which is my earliest musical memory. Um, you know, Freddie Mercury wrote Bohemian Rhapsody, obviously. Uh, Brian May wrote Fat Bottom Girls. Um, you know, every one of the guys in the band wrote a number one song. And... 
you know, how often can you say that? How, how often do you have a band full of people that are that talented and that are that in tune with each other that every one of them has written the number one song? And, and it just blows me away. And I'll finish up with this. I'm going to wrap up with this. This is the subtle <laughs> genius of Queen and of Brian May. There's a song on A Night at the Opera, which, again, is just a tremendous album. If you haven't heard it, you got to listen to it. It's a song called 39. And it is set up to sound like a sea shanty. If you listen to it, it very much sounds like the sort of thing that, that pirates or, or uh, sailors would sing on the boat to keep their spirits up during a long sea journey. And the lyrics seem to reflect that. Um, the lyrics are, um, in the year of 39, uh, assembled here the volunteers in the days when lands were new. And it's all about a bunch of people who are living in a, in a world that, in a place that where, where, where things are getting bad and they need to go out and find a new world. Like explorers, you know, the, like, like every, every conquistador or every pilgrim set out on a boat hoping to find the new world. And for better or for worse, they found one. And so Brian talks about that in this song and the lyrics about how these volunteers got together and their ship sailed off into the blue looking for a new land for their people in the year of 39. And then the second verse is in the year of 39 came a ship in from the blue, the volunteers came home that day, and they bring good news of a world so newly born, though their hearts so heavily weigh. And you come to find out, if you really listen to the song, that even though the opening of each verse is in the year of 39, then in the year of 39, so you think, well, they must have found something pretty quick. No, the song is not about explorers or volunteers on a boat. The song is about volunteers on a spaceship who are leaving a dying planet to go find the new planet, and they find one, and they come back, but because they fail to take into consideration Einsteinian time-space time dilation, they've been gone a hundred years by the time they get back to their planet. And this is a theme that got touched on years later in the very famous movie Interstellar with Matthew McConaughey about how for every minute that passes on this planet, 12 years will pass by on Earth. Well, the volunteers looking for a new world on this spaceship were using some sort of warp engine, some kind of light-speed engine. So they came home to come to their families and tell them, hey, we found a, a brand new planet and we can all go and live on it, but everybody they loved is dead because they've been <laughs> gone 100 years, even though they think they've only been gone a year. And the final lyric of the song is, um, for the Earth is old and gray, little darling will away for my love, this cannot be. For so many years have gone, though I'm older but a year, your mother's eyes from your eyes cry to me. And it's, that's the final lyric of the second verse. And in the last lyric of the song is, Don't you hear me calling you? All your letters in the sand cannot heal me like your hand, for my life's still ahead. Pity me. And it makes me sad. I'm actually tearing up thinking about it because they didn't know. They built a ship and they went out there trying to find the new world for their families and they came back and everyone they love is dead and they're, they, they're, they're apologizing to their grandchildren. And this is all wrapped up in the upbeat, bouncy music of a sea shanty. But Brian May... In 1970, cocksucking five was writing about <laughs> Einsteinian time-space dilation as it pertains to interstellar travel, and that more than anything is is Brian May and Queen in a nutshell: layers upon layers, wheels within wheels, versatility, virtuosity, brilliance and beauty. And I will, I, I hope to listen to Queen on the last day that I'm alive on this earth because of all of that and more. Well, that's a button if I've ever heard one. Uh, we're going to take a real short break. When we come back, we'll continue uh, 
uh, talking about the bands that brought us up and the brand, the bands that uh, bring us fandom. So uh, stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back, and and see now that's that's exactly why I started this podcast because I was able to just kind of sit back and and watch you just kind of light up and 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 explode with your fandom for Queen, and it was just it's a thing of beauty, and it's something that I've always enjoyed seeing in other people and having these conversations and, and delving into these depths of of minutia that. You know, maybe someone doesn't know about or maybe someone's just but seeing you just kind of open up and just kind of uh, flex that muscle there is 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 exactly why I started this podcast. That was extraordinarily uh, uh, wonderful to watch. And I just love uh, that band that it runs so deep for so many reasons. And, and, and well, that's, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And 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 my experience with Queen, of course, is, is kind of in a similar vein. I mean, I grew up listening to uh Basically, I there are two bands that I stole from my parents, and I don't mean stole as in physically stealing. Um, yeah. What I mean is, is there's not a lot of music that my parents, there's not a lot of media that my parents got into, that I got into. I mean, my my parents are more into that classic rock vein, and my parents are more into like, uh, I think maybe I I took into Mash, uh, just back when there was nothing else to watch on TV. Uh, Mass was one of the first shows that got syndicated on, uh, on right. Uh, so it was out a lot UHF channels, and so I watched that, and I, I kind of I learned to appreciate Mash. But uh, like the greatest hits tapes for Queen and the greatest hits tapes for Aerosmith, which are the yeah. two bands we're talking about today, are are one of my biggest memories of it, are, are utilizing the the tapes that my parents had and listening to those. And because the greatest hits tapes are the easiest way to access all of the 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 prevalent music and mm-hmm. and everything i mean that's certainly a great entry point for anybody who's trying to jump into uh, a particular genre or a particular sound so and you can look down uh, on greatest hits collections all you want but they're, they're they are a great way to do that and i think queen's greatest hits is still to this day the best-selling album in uk history so and there's fact, something to I, them i just showed you that last week i ended up buying that on on vinyl yeah uh, queen's greatest hits volume one and Fantastic. I'm going back uh, next week to pick up uh, Queen's Greatest Hits Volume 2 because it's like, again, like you said, it's nothing but bangers start to finish. It's all of it. Amen. And that's kind of the thing. And my parents were members of the Time Life uh, uh, music of the 70s, music of the 80s, music of the 60s, you know, those those genre collections, those... 
presenting Sounds of the 80s. All your favorite 80s hits in one incredible collection. Uh, music of Motown, of and yeah. And, and so I, I grew up listening to all of those tapes and everything too. And, and really, like I said, what I kind of rocked to with, uh, with Queen, uh, we'll, we'll continue with the Queen thing for the moment here, but... Uh, what I really enjoyed about Queen is exactly what you were talking about with their versatility yeah. and their uh, ability to uh, change the script, flip the script. Like there's certain bands that you know what you're going to get. There's certain bands that are known properties. You listen to ACDC, you could pull an ACDC riff off the radio and go, oh, that's an ACDC song. And if they put out a new album, you kind of know what it's going to sound like. It's always going to sound like an ACDC song. You know what I mean? And yeah. Same thing with Nirvana's kind of the same way. And, and like Guns N' Roses and Metallica. They've all kind of got that same, same kind of quality to their music. And I'm not saying that to be derogatory in any kind of fashion. But they have but a I'm, style. And, but and they the have a style. It. Right. And they stick with it. Whereas uh, someone like uh, even Aerosmith and Queen, are, I think, are two really good examples of bands yeah. that are able to float in and out of different genres and pull different sounds and do different things. Like like you said, Crazy Little Thing Called Love, rockability song, you know, uh, really kind of upbeat and punky and kind of, you know. Yeah, but but Queen they even did a punk song. They, they did a punk song called Sheer Heart Attack. And mm -hmm. that was a song that, that was born strictly... I remember... I'm going to make this real quick. They were at a studio in England recording that album. Uh, and uh, uh, the Sex Pistols were in the same studio. And they were the kind of the new hot thing. And, of course, uh, the Sex Pistols you know, were very anti-establishment. And, and Freddie used to toast the Queen with, with, uh, with champagne at his concerts. And they named themselves Queen, for Christ's sake. So there was a run-in. Freddie actually had a run-in with Sid Vicious in a hallway <laughs> at the studio. And this was when they were recording the follow-up to A Night at the Opera, which had been very... I mean, you know, the, the, the famous story about how they had to do a quick transfer on the tape of Night at the Opera was in the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. Otherwise, they were going to lose their take because they had rubbed the, the graphite off the tape. They'd done so many layers of vocal vocals on it um and the song was seen as very over the top and very decadent and to this day we're making a queen album the shorthand for any band saying we're really going over the top and doing all kinds of layers <laughs> so freddie right. runs into sid vicious in the hallway at the studio in england and they, they you couldn't have asked for two more different you know stars from that era um you know the scrappy street punk and then the sort of like regal uh guy who literally named himself after royalty so and a god freddie mercury after all so they're in this hallway and uh sid just came you know running right up to Freddie and got in his face and he's like, Oi, Fred, right, so you brought ballet to the masses then, have you? You know, kind of tweaking on his pretension. And Freddie looked Sid Vicious up and down and said, Oh, well, if it isn't Mr. Ferocious, well, we're certainly trying our very best, my darling. And he walked <laughs> away. And then he went into the studio and wrote Sheer Heart Attack as a fuck you to Sid Vicious, saying, You know what? I can write a song like you can write one. Now you write Bohemian Rhapsody, you fucking twisted bitch. That was a you diss know, track. That's Sheer Heart Attack was a diss amazing. track. Diss tracks before diss tracks. That's Freddie Mercury incredible. wrote a diss track for Sid Vicious after Sid Vicious got in his face and tweaked his pretension. I love See? that story. And that's why I like shit like this, because I didn't know that. That's amazing. And I, I've been a fan of Queen for as long as I can remember, and I didn't know that. And, and in fact, one of the songs that still brings me to tears uh, with a story attached to it is... 
is the show must go on. And yeah. we've talked about this before. And uh, Brian May kind of approached Freddie with this song, which was kind of written like a uh, like an epitaph. It, it's yeah, kind it of was. it's kind of the last uh, gasp of Freddie Mercury, really. And Brian uh, approached Freddie with it, and he's like, "Look, man, if you can't do it, I get it. You know, yeah. I know you're sick, but if you can't do it." Just let me know. Because let's and not let's not forget that Freddie died of complications of AIDS because his his um his immune system was crippled. But what actually got him was pneumonia. This beautiful, right. soaring, powerful, shake the walls once in a lifetime kind of voice was silenced by pneumonia, and that is one of the saddest things I can think of. Right. And so this song, this beautiful epitaph to the career and life of Freddie Mercury, you know, Brian's like, hey man, if you can't do it, I get it. Uh, and Freddie Mercury's like, he, da- he like uh, according to legend, he downs a pint of vodka, true, and drops the vodka like in one shot, and he's like, "Give me the song, darling," and, and fucking he, uh, hits it in the first that take, the first yep. take. Whatever And that song is just so... Oh. And it was recorded so close to his passing that it was released posthumously. If you look at the video for that song, it's, it's, it's built up of clips from their previous videos because Freddie wasn't around to shoot new footage. The last song he ever shot a video for was Those Were the Days of Our Lives. And it was a brilliant, beautiful little song, and they did shoot a video for it. Freddie was very sick. He was in pancake makeup and weighed about 90 pounds. But he turned in a beautiful, beautiful performance. And the last Soul thing... Soul-shaking. Yeah, the last thing you ever... The, the last piece of footage Freddie Mercury ever recorded. <sighs> I'm going to miss up on this one again. But he sings that song, and the final lyric is, I still love you. It's a very reflective song about, you know, these are the days of our lives. This is, you know, you can experience new things and, and, and you have to kind of like look back on your life and appreciate the good times. And the last lyric is, I still love you. So in the video, Freddie, sick as he is, he sings all the entire song. And then at the very end of it, the very tag of it is Freddie. He looks at the ground. He just laughs a little bit. You can see him giggling, his, his, his intimidable Freddie giggle. And he looks up at the screen and he gets his face on of bravery. And he looks at the screen. He looks directly in the camera and says, I still love you. Yeah. God, it kills me to this day. I, I, I watch it and I can't, I can't even talk about it without getting all, all up in my fucking feels but, about it. But see, that's the fucking power of uh, Queen and Freddie Mercury in general is because yeah. he's got this kind of presence, this kind of gravitas that just, you don't see it a lot. He could hold 50,000 people in the palm of his hand and did. And, and yeah, and when he's on stage and people are responding to him, with the, like the call and the, response. Uh-huh. Or when he does Radio yeah. Gaga and everybody's seen the video and they're all clapping and thrusting their fists in the air. And it's the, the crowd is so huge, you can actually visually clock the speed of sound by watching the waves of claps go out over the, the, the standing room only crowd at Wembley Stadium. Fucking it's fucking amazing. incredible. Yeah. But yeah, so I came to Aerosmith and, and, and Queen in much the same way. And, and I kind of have that kind of 
the, what you have with Queen, I kind of have the same sort of uh, connection with Aerosmith now. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I came I came into Aerosmith late. Uh, my uh, exposure to Aerosmith, of course, they formed in 1970. Uh, so they've been around, you know, a while by the time I was born. And uh, I think Queen formed in 69 or 72. So they got the same, uh, same sort of basic uh, genealogy going on there. Right, exactly. And, and, and. I mean, I've done my research on Aerosmith. It's been a little while, so I may get a little bit of the facts incorrect. But, like, uh, when they came on the scene, uh, I, and I read a lot of this in the in, in their autobiography that uh, I read a long time ago. And uh, um, Stephen Tyler, Stephen Tallarico, Stephen yep. Tyler, was just musically gifted child. His parents were, uh, like, I think his dad was a, a piano master, a virtuoso. And uh, he learned, basically, at his father's knee, listening to his father play and learning how to play. And and, and so Stephen was really able to adapt that kind of style. And, um, and, and I'm not going to get too much into the history of Aerosmith, because I don't want to get a whole lot of facts wrong. And I could, I could wiki it all at this point. But, you know, we're here to talk about the music. And so... Their early stuff, uh, if you listen to their self-titled uh, release, their first major album release, uh, it's very blues. It's very, I mean, you could definitely yeah. hear Stevens putting on kind of a, a bluesy kind of throaty uh, riff that he's doing. And it's not what you're accustomed to hearing with Aerosmith. When you're hearing Aerosmith... a lot of bands that started real bluesy in, the, in that era, like Fleetwood Mac did the same thing, and a lot, Eric right. Clapton did a lot of blues stuff too, so it was very prevalent in the UK at that time, and so there were a lot of bands, that, even if they weren't necessarily UK bands, that, that were steeped in that tradition. Well, right, and Aerosmith was one of those bands because they were emulating a lot of stuff that they heard back in that time. I mean, they're, they're from Boston. They, they formed on the East Coast, and uh, so they are not actually in the same British lineage, but they definitely had that kind of upbringing and that kind of musical reference. And for sure. And, and so, you know, if you listen to a lot of like walking the dog, dream on or you know all these songs are very blues driven you know uh moving out very yeah. great song and 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 so this album doesn't sound like your typical aerosmith album uh and in fact the only one that really gets any traction anymore from that album would be dream on and that's uh just because that was aerosmith's ballad back in the day and uh so moving on to like the second album when you had get your wings uh that's where you really start to see that Aerosmith style kind of develop. Yeah, so Get Your Wings was released in 1974. 1974, uh, you really start to see them develop their style with uh, uh, Same Old Song and Dance was kind of that uh, little bit bluesy, a little bit more uh, rocky kind of version of things. And uh, you get to hear uh, like Too Bad, same kind of, you know... Uh, it's it's more rock than blues based anyway, and then uh, train kept rolling was just kind of like oh yeah anthemic. Uh, it's it's long as shit for a song back in the day, and uh, so I mean you really start seeing them develop a style, and then of course 
the third album, Toys in the Attic, is really, really where they hit and where they broke. And, and of course, the, uh, uh, the tracks on that are Sweet Emotion, Walk This Way. These are the tracks Jesus. that kind of set the, the tone for what they Cemented were going to be them. known for. Yeah. And so I, I came into these, like I said, with Greatest Hits albums, but uh, it's, it's, it's rare to me where I'll find a sound that I really enjoy that I'll go back and start digging through the back catalog on. Yeah. So, you know, of course, like we talk about with Queen, with the, the all bangers on, on those uh, mm-hmm. uh, Greatest Hits albums, same all thing. All killer, no filler. Right, exactly. But I wanted the filler. Yeah. So I went back and I started... I, I can distinctly remember rummaging through pawn shops and, and used CD stores and used record stores and, and trying to find these albums so I could see what else they did. And that's where I found uh, my love of the band. I mean, I, I enjoyed the band, but being able to kind of pick up and listen to and discover all of these different sounds that they were able to accomplish all of these different things and and aerosmith themselves have really never wanted to pigeonhole themselves i mean they put out blues albums they put out rock albums they've put out uh uh, screaming soaring ballads sappy and really those those album tracks where the meat and potatoes of a given band sound is because they have to to a certain extent when it comes to singles write stuff that's radio friendly but if they're not planning on releasing a song as a single that's where you really sort of hear their chops and their influences Judge your constipation and go to his head and his wife's aggravation. You're soon enough dead. That's the same old story, same old song and dance, my friend. That's the same old story. Right, exactly, and and so going through a Lord of the Lord of the Fly or Lord of Your Thighs, excuse me, going through Lord of the Thighs or Uncle Salty, which is off of uh, Toys in the Attic, or uh, looking at Rocks, which is really kind of their, they had a real definite, like you talked about with Queen, where they kind of fell off in the United States but never really fell off on in the UK. Yeah, Aerosmith fell apart. Yeah, like in the early eighties. Aerosmith self-destructed. And well, Steve uh, and Joe were, were uh, very famously the toxic twins at the time, and they were both kind of uh, doing a whole lot of drugs. and A whole lot of drugs. A uh, whole lot of when drugs. drugs becomes your, when, when drugs become your image, that's bad. Yeah. That's real bad. And so the band kind of fell apart. Uh, and, and in fact, there's a story that they talk about in the, uh, uh, in the biography. They talked about it uh, backstage at a show one time. Uh, Steven Tyler's just fucking trashed. And they're in the green room. Ooh, and Steven pl- Tyler? Right. They're playing this song, uh, and they're like, oh, he's like, oh my god, that song's amazing. We should cover that song. And they're like, Steven, mate, you wrote that song. That's you. That is you. And he's just so fucking thrashed, he doesn't even recognize his own shit. And so that's that's poisonous. That's definitely poisonous. So... Uh, Joe Perry left the group at one point. Tom Hamilton left the group at one point. Yeah. Joe Perry, of course, went out to form uh, the Joe Perry Project, which was his kind of uh, exercise in writing. And, and, and they put, I think they put out three albums with three different lead singers. And uh, I mean, it was interesting. Uh, it wasn't great. I mean, you get to hear Joe Perry play guitar, and Joe Perry's amazing on the guitar, but it wasn't... That he is. 
it wasn't Aerosmith. And I think that was kind of the thing. And so much like uh, Wayne's World brought Queen back to the public uh, eye, uh, Aerosmith was brought back by Run DMC. Run DMC. Because they had a very uh, Run DMC gravitated towards the song "Walk This Way." "Walk This Way" has a backbeat to it, the drum beat to it, and the guitar riff for it that are very synonymous with a very wide range of songs. That song has been sampled more than I care to even recommend recollect. I mean, it's everywhere, and yes, it's it a is. very very simple beat. And it lends itself to such a wide range of things. And so Run DMC came to it as a sample and hit up Aerosmith like, hey, we want to sample your song. We want to kind of cover uh, your song, Walk This Way. And and someone at the, at the label had the bright idea to incorporate Joe Perry, incorporate uh, Steven Tyler. I don't know why they didn't bring in Joey Kramer to do the drum beat because that was his fucking beat, but whatever. Yeah. Um, well, Joey Kramer so, kind of gets the shaft in a lot of ways, and we'll get to that in a little while. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, but, so, uh, they had this back when MTV still did music videos. Remember music videos, kids? Wow! Sure. Um, <laughs> before YouTube? Uh, so, they had this great crossover video with Run DMC rapping the lyrics to Walk This Way, and then Steven Tyler busting through the wall to bellow out that chorus in a way that only Steven Tyler could do. And this is before House of Pain, this is before Cypress Hill, this is before there were any rap-rock hybrid bands or even any rap-rock hybrid songs. The whole thing you can trace back to that particular collaboration. Right, and it was such a strong thing for the hip-hop community. It was such a strong thing for the Aerosmith fandom. Hey, we're because, not so different. We can all make absolute slap songs that you, you you love to listen to. And, you know, you've got these guys wearing their Adidas and their Kangol hats, and they're hanging out with Steven Tyler with his flowing scarves and, and, uh, <laughs> and absolute uh, rock god uh, you know persona. And they're throwing their arms around each other and just creating this song for the love of music. And, and I mean, and so Aerosmith had come out with a couple of albums in the meantime. They had, like, a Night in the Ruts and... And uh, Dumb With Mirrors and everything like that. And they're okay, but they're not Aerosmith. Yeah. Uh, they, they were okay. They had uh, some uh, fill-in musicians at the time. They had, uh, I know they had Jimmy Crespo and they had, uh, uh, oh yeah, Rick DeFay and Ray Tabano all kind of sitting in uh, for the members who had walked away at, at any particular time. But uh, it, without... Without Joe Perry and without Tom Hamilton and and it just it just didn't sit the same, you know what I mean? And yeah, any and Brad Whitford, be greater than the sum Whitford of the group too at one point too. So I yeah. mean, they were down to basically Joey Kramer and and fucking Steven Tyler at that point. Any band is always greater than the sum of its parts, and Aerosmith is is one of the classic examples of that. They just those five dudes when they get together, they make absolute magic. And so uh, when they when they hit with. Uh, 
walk this way, Run DMC's walk this way, they kind of got back together and like, all right, we're going to give this a shot again. And so Done With Mirrors was their first attempt at that. And, and at the time, Steven was still pretty strung out and and uh, they were trying to get clean. And I think they said that uh, uh, Permanent Vacation was the first album that they wrote after Rehab. And uh, Permanent Vacation kind of marks a different era of Aerosmith. It, 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 everything it before opened. and everything that came after Permanent Vacation. Right, and I'm not going to say that they were 100%, you know, on the wagon the entire time, because like everyone else, they had instances where they fell off and and regressed and backpedaled, and but that really marked the new era of Aerosmith, and and I think they've decided to stay together as a band by and large at that point, and come out with a lot of what you hear today as the Aerosmith hits. Dude looks like a lady, and fucking uh, Janie's got a gun, and uh, Jaded, and all of these songs came post. Uh, crying and yeah, crying, amazing, living on the edge, and I mean, you get all of these different tracks. I don't want to miss a thing for good or for bad. Ugh, that song still looks cringy to me. I don't know why. Diane but... Warren. <laughs> but still, I mean, how many times do you get a band that that has that much potential and that much history, but had had that much trouble? have a second wind that's even better received, stronger, and, and more indicative of their overall legacy than the first. Their second time around after Permanent Vacation, just absolute powerhouse, reminded the whole world what kind of band they were, what they were capable of, and it just absolutely blew the lid off of stadiums all over the world when they when they said, hey, you know what, we never really went away, we just took a minute to kind of get our shit together, and here's some stuff that's absolutely going to blow your hair back. How, how many bands get a chance to do that? Right, exactly, and then we were talking about bootlegs and everything then, and there was the same, the same kind of community bootlegging a lot of Aerosmith's concerts, and Aerosmith actually took a, uh, a different approach to it. They got kind of annoyed with the bootlegging because they weren't, you know, official releases, and you couldn't yeah. control the sound, and you couldn't choose the track listings. Or uh, So Aerosmith came out with one of their own live albums, and, and it's one of the only live albums that I really enjoy because... I have a hard time listening to live albums because of the, of the, you know, varying degree of quality of the band as they, as they do the live album. It's not some bands are definitely studio bands. Yeah, for sure. It's like that one and like ACDC live. I think of the two live albums that I can listen to without cringing. Yeah, but they came out with an album called Live Bootleg, and uh, it's like a double live album, and it's just. It's it's under their control, and I think they uh, managed to piece together like three or four different concerts into this one uh, pretty solid track listing, and and they distributed it themselves, and I think they had like multiple covers for it and multiple versions of it, and just they tried to take control of the whole bootleg thing themselves, and to varying degrees of success. So I mean, I don't know how well that worked for them. I'm not a, a record promoter. I don't know what kind of uh, uh, sales figures they had for that, but. But as long as it sounded good, it was a success. But Aerosmith was really, again, like one of those bands that I wanted to deep dive their catalog after listening to uh, their greatest hits. And, and I, I, I really uh, enjoyed it. And, and like I said, that's why when you, you wanted to talk about Queen, I wanted to talk about Aerosmith because I kind of had the similar experience with right. both of those bands personally myself. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take another quick short break. When we come back, we will kind of discuss the legacies of 
uh, Queen and Aerosmith and, and what they're doing now and how they're doing it and good, bad, indifferent, whatever. Uh, but uh, we'll come back and, and kind of wrap up talking about our fandoms of Queen and Aerosmith. Stick around. back and so uh we were going to kind of discuss uh where the bands have gone uh since their heyday um like i said uh queen and aerosmith have really had the ability to kind of stick around on the public consciousness the public radar uh for a lot of years uh but they're definitely not in the heyday they're 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 still around they're still touring in very They're legacy degrees. acts. They're nostalgia and, acts to a degree. Right. I mean, Queen Just, probably more so than Aerosmith because Queen isn't really putting out new music right now and Aerosmith is still very much a, uh, a vital active band. But, you know, they, they, they both are uh, kind of in some ways, I think, kind of coasting on their back catalog to a degree. Well, I mean, and they're older now. They're a lot older. Yeah. So in 19... Let's just put... A number on it. I hate doing that because it dates me horribly. But 1970 for both bands mm-hmm. as a creation, yeah. basically. So that's 51 I mean, that's years. That's 51 years as a band. How old are the people years. in the band? Right. I mean, I mean, not, yeah, like you said, but uh, just looking at the age of the two main participants, okay? Brian May, 73 years old now. Mm-hmm. Steven Tyler, 73 years old now. Same, same. <sighs> and so, I mean, we're getting to a point where and god i hate saying this but they're they're not as vital as they used to be they're not as young as they used to be uh so coasting might be the only thing they have left and i don't know aerosmith has come into a lot of uh scrutiny recently they had a thing with the rock and roll hall of fame where this they were being yeah they were being honored i was it like a lifetime achievement award i want and to so say yeah it was they were getting inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame and getting the award right and uh yeah and they kind of uh excluded joey kramer from the performance joey kramer of course being the drummer for aerosmith and the uh, only guy who's been in the band the entire time besides steven tyler right he wasn't practicing i guess uh, as much uh well, i think and, he had an injury i think he had a foot injury he did he was right. he was injured and so recuperating from the injury he didn't leave him a whole lot of time to practice and and, and get uh back up to speed or up to snuff and so uh, they excluded him from the performance of their induction at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, just he got to be on stage with them, but they didn't let him play. And I remember seeing something from him. It was on TMZ or whatever, which is uh, not the greatest source of, of uh, information. But um, they showed him rocking up to the rehearsals for the show, and he, they, they didn't. He wasn't admitted. They didn't let him into the hall. And he talked to the cameras and said, yeah, these guys who I've been with in this band for 50 years, they're making me re-audition for the seat that I've held down since the, the er- very early days of this band. 
which is absolutely ludicrous. I mean, it's horseshit. I I get that that maybe he wasn't the guy that I mean, look at bands like Def Leppard. What happened with the drummer for Def Leppard? They stuck with him. They stuck with him. They adapted their sound to stick with their guy. They built him uh, a custom kit that he could operate largely with his feet so that he can continue to play the parts, and they continue to tour and record with Rick Allen. But Joey Kramer has an injury, and they can't, they can't adapt and, and overcome? That's, that's so insulting to me. I mean, uh, I can't even imagine what was going through Joey Kramer's mind at that point. Like, I don't I mean, want to bag on Steve and Joe and the boys, but it was, it was, I looked at that with a great deal of sadness. Because, I mean, if you can turn your back on a guy who's who's uh, been your friend and your bandmate for that long. I just, I, I, it was a very, very sad situation all the way around, and, and uh, it just still to this day kind of makes me uh, kind of shake my head a little bit. Yeah, it's like saying, you know, oh, you're going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but we're going to bring a cover band in to play your shit. You know, you're not, like, what if it was Steven Tyler? What if he had, like, a cold? Are they going to bring in, like, a, a fucking <laughs> ringer? Bring in that dude from Journey who can sing just like Stephen Perry? <laughs> That's another whole kettle of fish. I love Journey and what they've done, but that's not going to be a part of this episode. No. we got way too much other shit to talk about. But right, so, I mean, it was really insulting and kind of difficult to see uh, as a fan of the band, as a fan of the music, just to see that kind of division in the band. And I mean, it's bound to happen after, you know, 50-something years. And you see shit like that with the original Kiss lineup, too. I mean, yeah, uh, with uh, Ace Frehley and... Uh, Peter Chris, Peter Chris being on the outs, and uh, a lot of people are like really diehard fans of those members. But again, another thing people need to understand is they've been out of the band for almost as long as there's been a band. They've been out of the band yeah. for at least half of the band's life cycle. But you know, uh, yeah. Gene and Paul a... definitely do confuse things because they keep on inviting them back for one-offs and to do farewell tours and whatnot. And then Peter gets back up there and they can do Beth again, and it's just it's confusing for the fans. But you know, I, I guess I also kind of get it because you and I have both been in bands before, and we're you're in one now, and I'm trying to start another one. And sometimes those interpersonal relationships, it's hard to have uh, a professional and personal relationship with a bunch of other people, and occasionally you're just going to butt heads and get pissed off at each other. And I guess that's understandable. Any band that can make it as long as as Aerosmith has, and not have completely fallen apart. Right? I mean, fallen apart, got back together, whatever. We're going to re- reunite the original lineup. I mean, it really is. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not 50 years old yet. I'm, you know, it's coming, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> but still, like, you know, I can't imagine trying to maintain those relationships for that long, plus be productive, plus be on the road with all the stresses that entails, plus try and be creative, plus go through, you know, things like drugs and drama and all the rest of the shit that they've had to deal with. But, you know, still, I mean, nevertheless, it's it's just a really, it's a really sad thing to see what happened. But uh, last I heard... Um, Joey was back in their good graces. They're they're all back together again. They're working on some new music. They got some tour stuff going on. There, I think I remember seeing something where either Joe or Steven said something about how post COVID they're looking to kind of roar back on the road and make up for lost time. And and so I'd love to see him again. I've seen him multiple yeah. times on the road. I've seen him. Uh, I want to say three times. Uh, and in fact, I still wear one of their tour shirts from back in. I tell my my kids that the shirt's older than they are. Uh, yeah, it's their Just Push Play tour, which I think was 2000, early 2001, something like that. Well, you are a lucky and, bastard, uh, because I never got a chance to see Freddie Mercury perform. Uh, the last show the Queen ever did, they have a very famous live album that was recorded at Wembley Stadium, and I want to say 1986, and then that was their second to last ever live performance. They did a show at Nebworth Park in the UK following that live recording that was put out as a double out live album. Um, and I don't know, I don't think I've ever seen any recordings of that Nebworth Park 
show emerge. I don't think they made any recordings. I mean, being as it was the last Queen performance, you'd think if it was recorded at all, it would have seen even a bootleg light of day somewhere, but I've never seen it, and I've certainly looked. But Queen has had a rather troubled post-Freddie's um, passing history than, than Aerosmith has had. They, they're still a going concern. They're still out there. Right. They still call themselves Queen, but they... Um, they acknowledge that it's only about half the original members. Roger Taylor, the drummer, and of course the great Brian May, the guitar player, are out there, and they're doing the music. Uh, they and I have seen Brian May do solo shows twice for his two solo albums when he done the, the brief tours he came to America. Got a chance to meet him once and tell him how important his music was to me. And he signed a copy of Night at the Opera, and I have it framed along with a picture of him signing it. And that was fantastic. I've seen that. But, That's really cool. Uh, he was such a he's exactly who you wanted to be in person too he was just warm and friendly and, and just very uh, generous with his time but Queen also has, has taken on other singers for a while they toured with Paul Rogers of Bad Company and they were very quick to point out that look we're not trying to replace Freddie we're not trying to and, you know and Paul said shit I can't sing his stuff I can you know I'm, I'm pretty confident in my vocal ability I can do the stuff that I do but I can't sing like Freddie did but they went out and they did kind of a hybrid of uh, playing some free songs some bad company songs some Paul's some Paul's solo stuff and a whole lot of Queen stuff and I saw that show and it was very bittersweet it was a good show because I mean I, I was thrilled to see Brian and Roger and to be attending any kind of concert that had Queen on the ticket but it um, wasn't Queen. It wasn't Queen, and Paul's fine. I like Paul Rogers. I like Bad Company. I like Free, and I, I don't mind Paul Rogers at all. And it was really nice to hear the music performed live at all by anybody who had a hand in creating it. But it wasn't Queen. But I still left the show pretty happy. And I did see them once with Adam Lambert as well. And Adam Lambert obviously is a fucking powerhouse. That guy could sing the phone book, and it would be riveting. He's God, amazing. I hated He's that incredible. at first. I hated yeah. it at first. I did not <sighs> want to like him because he was such. I mean, I watched a little bit of the American Idol shit when yeah. he was on it. And he's just and he auditioned kinda, with Bohemian Rhapsody on his very first ever appearance in front of which Simon is ballsy Cowell, Jackson and Paula Abdul, which is that's ballsy. Like, yeah, that's like auditioning at the Royal Shakespeare Company with uh, with a Hamlet soliloquy. That's there's certain sacred cows you just don't touch. But he not only came out and did it, but he did an admirable job. And he did that kind of thing that like I, and I used to watch American Idol too, and I got pissed off, especially at Randy Jackson. A lot, because Randy was always the one who would either give the criticism, hey, that's a great song, don't mess with it, it doesn't need your help, or you just did a karaoke version of that song and you need to make it your own, and it was always really confusing. But Adam struck <laughs> that sweet spot when he auditioned with Bohemian Rhapsody of doing the, the song justice, but also putting his own spin on it in a way that you still knew what the song was, and it didn't ruin the song, but it made it a song that was going to be his song. And of course, very famously, you know, years later, he's out there touring with Queen and just absolutely doing a bang-up job of it. He is a riveting I, showman. <laughs> I grew to like it. I mean, like I said, I didn't want to like it at first, and I think a large part of that was because, oh, it's not Freddie, fuck it. I mean, this is yeah. cocky little shithead Adam Lambert. and Out and then I re- around with his boots. And I his had to remember. Gowns. I had to remember. Freddie Mercury was a cocky little shithead, too. Right. Absolutely was. back it up. Out there yeah. wearing the, 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 the gowns and the harlequin pattern jumpsuits and all that shit. And so I, I think Adam Lambert, even though he doesn't sound like Freddie, he has an amazing range and he captures sort of the spirit of the that essence. incredible yeah. showmanship, that flamboyance, that, that beautiful onstage presence, plus the incredible vocal ability.
the, the aspect of the Queen Empire that I'm the most impressed by right now is a guy named Mark Martell. Mark with a C, M-A-R-T-E-L. If you look him up on YouTube, this is a guy who, when Roger and Brian were putting together what they called the Queen Extravaganza, which was the officially sanctioned Queen tribute band that was going to go out on tour and play all the hits. Uh, they, they auditioned, they, they opened auditions on YouTube for instrumentalists, for vocalists, and Mark Martell came along. And if you Google Mark Martell, crazy little thing, no, excuse me, that was the second round audition, which is also fantastic. He did a crazy little thing called Love, and it was eerily accurate. But he opened with Somebody to Love. And it's only the first two minutes of the song up through the guitar solo. But if you Google it and you listen to it, I, I watched this. Somebody sent it to me, knowing what a, a diehard Queen fan I am, and they sent it to me and said, check this guy out. And I watched it, and I thought to myself for about the first five or six measures, I'm like, why is he just lip-syncing? This is going to be a live performance show. And I, oh, shit, he's not lip-syncing. He's actually singing. This guy opened his mouth, and Freddie's voice poured out. And I've seen a lot of people try and sing like Freddie Mercury, and there's people that can sort of like ape his range there are people that kind of like get the the gravel a little bit but freddie mercury had such a signature tone it was such a signature tone it, like, like just like brian may's guitar nobody else sounded like freddie mercury except this guy and he came out with this audition and he not only sounded a lot like freddie he looked an awful lot like freddie he's he kind of has a very you know strong jawline and, and a little bit of an overbite and some very like sort of high proud cheekbones and dark hair the shock of dark hair and deep set eyes to the point where people, even me, a little bit to this day, are kind of like, let's get a DNA test, because the guy's the right age to where Queen was touring Canada at the time, and Mark is from Toronto, that, uh, you know, Mom could have uh, been a groupie or something, and Freddie was, of course, riding both sides of the fence at that point, so it's possible I want a DNA test, because this guy sounds so much like Freddie that they actually <laughs> tapped him a little bit to fill in some vocals for the Bohemian Rhapsody film, Right, we, we talked about that at have one vocals. point, yeah. Yeah. And he, you know, he sound it's it's eerie. He to this day when he, he opens his mouth and sings like Freddie, he makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. So I saw Mark with the Queen Extravaganza uh, when they were on tour when I lived in Minneapolis. So it's got to be you know going on at least eight or ten years ago now when I saw them. But he's just as good live. He 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 sings Freddie's songs and he he sings them like Freddie did. So we've got you know, <coughs> Adam Lambert out there who kind of embodies the spirit of Freddie with the, the stage presence and the, the incredible range. And then we got a guy out there, Mark Martell, who hasn't really... He's performed, He's done one-off things. He actually did, did uh, a song with Queen on one episode of uh, American Idol a number of years ago. And that was fine. But he's never toured with them. But he sounds just like Freddie. Um, and of and course, maybe he know, just doesn't have that stage presence. Maybe he just doesn't have that swagger. He's pretty like good. I saw I saw him live, and he's pretty good. But I think I don't know. I don't know why Queen doesn't tour with him. Maybe because they are very markedly and have several times over with Paul Rogers and Adam Lambert both said they're not trying to replace Freddie. I think maybe people would see it as a cynical move, like, hey, we, we got a guy who sounds just like him, and it might not be as accepted as a lot of yeah, fans like me yeah, think I it get might that. be. And of course, there's also the very sad. Um, like I said way back at the top of this episode, which seems like a, a century ago, that uh, John Deacon, uh, Queen's founding, well, not founding, that's not true. He did join the band a little bit after Freddie did uh, when they were still Smile, and they changed their name to, to Queen once once John joined. He was the last member of the band to join. But he also was, the, apart from Freddie, the first one to exit. Um, John has not appeared in public to do interviews, 
to do any uh, work on the Queen movie. Uh, John's last appearance uh, as a member of Queen or even in public at all was the Freddie Mercury tribute concert at Wembley Stadium in 1992. And then he has dropped out of public life. He doesn't do interviews. He doesn't tour with the band. He doesn't perform. He doesn't write music. He doesn't guest on other people's albums. John Deacon retired in 1992, and he became something of a recluse. And he and his wife live in the UK, and they don't. They they simply don't do anything at all. That any well, good for him. Sometimes, yeah, he, he, he certainly did his time. earned it. He did his time. He put in his time. He made his money, and he. To, to, a lot of people close to the band said that that he and Freddie were the closest. They dearly loved each other, and so I don't think. And, and there have been interviews that that Roger and, and Brian have done where they say they haven't even talked to John in about 15 years. And he is still a member of the board of the of, of the actual corporation of the band that is Queen. So he still gets royalties from the songs he wrote. He still gets checks. He still gets a piece of the merchandise. But he just doesn't... He's not a person who's... who's he was always very shy and very quiet. And w- one of the people that didn't really... you know, he, he had amazing bass lines. He was a fantastic musician. Didn't do a lot of singing on stage. But he was always kind of like the quiet guy who hung out in the background and handled the business stuff before they got their own management. And so he just... He's retired and he's happy and he, he and his wife live in a, in a little house in, in, in the UK and he just cashes the checks and, and doesn't try to, to relive the old glory. And uh, to a certain extent, I think that's sad, but I also respect I kind of respect that, yeah. Yeah, he did it. He did what he needed to do and then when Freddie passed, it wasn't Queen anymore and he just decided he was going to be done with it. And so I tried to look up uh, whether or not Aerosmith and Queen had ever uh, kind of collaborated, but I don't think they really have. Uh, but I did find a quote from uh, Brian May talking about Aerosmith, and I'm going to read that here real quick. It says, uh, Aerosmith brought back the smile to my face, brought pride back to me. These guys remind me, or these guys remind us that there is still greatness out there. There is still a band that is all real and full of passion and innovation and courage and brickloads of polish, too. This, to me, is the way it should be done. Some of it is what you are, and some of it is what you do. I know this art, this craft, this life, so I appreciate greatness in it all the more. These guys have been to the wall and back, and it shows. Each one of them has devoted his life to his craft. Like that great carpenter I was talking about, and it shows. And for me, watching... I see all the elements that are rare and wonderful and feel glad that my kids can see this and I don't have to explain to them what real live rock music is about. And he finishes with saying, I loved every second. The most joyous thing about them is that they did not become showbiz. They did not lose their roots. They are still treading that fine line between structure and improvisation, clean and dirty, love of what their music does, and love of it for itself. Commercialism and art, fire and water, earth and air, light and shade. There will never be a rock group more all-around great than Aerosmith, in my humble opinion. And, and that's it, exactly who Brian May is, right there in a nutshell. That is high praise. I mean, the high man praise. has always been a rock god in his own right, but he's always been humble. He's always been quick to deflect the, the praise to the other members of his band. The man is a renaissance man. Like we said, he he has all these incredible passions that he's incredibly good at. And even, you know, I think I even forgot to mention, after he got his PhD for a little while, he actually served as the chancellor of the Imperial College of London. He headed up the college that he graduated from with his PhD. I mean, 
academic, researcher, musician, engineer, fantastic. And he's just an all-around humble guy who makes you feel like the only person in the room when you talk to him. And he turns around and just waxes poetic like that about other bands that he admires. And, you know, when you can look back and see that the bands that you're a fan of are also a fans of other bands that you're a fan of, then it just, it, you know, the whole thing just, it turns into just an absolute Ouroboros of, of, of beauty. And I love that about them. Right, absolutely. And so, I mean, those are a couple of bands that we really like. And obviously you can hear it in the way we talk about them. You can hear it in the reverence that we take to them. Uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, we're fans all around. And, and and again, like we could talk about this shit for hours. And we do. <laughs> yeah. And we do. But we want to know, uh, who are you guys fans of musically? What 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 bands move you to tears? Like Jim with Queen or... Uh, move you to a deeper research and 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 appreciation uh, like Aerosmith for me. We want to hear your opinions. We want to know who you rock to, and and it's completely self-serving. I want to know who you guys are into because maybe I need to be into that. Maybe Absolutely. I need to hear this shit and get into it. I'm always it. on the lookout for new music. Absolutely. And, and furthermore, like if you love a band the way that 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 Kevin and I love Aerosmith and Queen, and you want to come on and talk about it and tell us the story and tell us the trivia, and Do all, it. all the magical stuff about like you know what what we just talked about about our favorite bands, educate us. Come on the show, be a guest on the program, talk to us about what your passions are, talk to us about what your favorite band is, and spread the love and be an evangelist and and, and lay down some gospel <laughs> so that we can we can love them just as much as you do. Absolutely, and and. And, 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 and we want to hear about it. And like I said, this is the reason that I developed the podcast. To hear that joy in someone talking about something that means so much to them. That brings a smile to their face. It brings a smile to my face. And it makes me want to go out and listen to Queen. Like I didn't listen to Queen already. But uh, like if you, t- you bring to us what you listen to, maybe I'll get that kind of feeling from that too. Uh, maybe someone else will get that feeling from listening to it. You never know. Spread the fandom around. That's what we're about. Music and is such a way of bringing people together. Absolutely. So, once again, if you want to find us, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash fuel your fandom. You can send us a message on the messenger there. We'll respond to it with a quickness. We love talking to our fans. Uh, you can hit us up at our Gmail, which is uh, fuelyourfandom at gmail.com. And you can hit us up at fyftalentbooking at gmail.com. Send us your show ideas there. Send us your favorite bands there. Send us your guest suggestions, especially if they're yourself. And, of course, that's where the pie recipes go. And if you want to find our streaming site, you can go to FuelYourFandom at Buzzsprout.com. That's where the latest and greatest episodes will always be uploaded. Or, as always, you can find us on your favorite podcast distribution platform iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Player FM, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you go to get fine podcasts, we're going to be knocking around the corners. Absolutely. And so uh, send us your information. Send us who you listen to. We want we want more music, damn it. We want to get into some more shit. But from the bottom of our hearts, we want to thank you for listening. And uh, again, we've proved it this episode, but I'll say it again. Everything is fandom. And fandom is everything. Take care. we